Scripture. Let's open up our hearts to God's Word. Well, hello. Good evening. Glad you could make it here tonight. Good to see everybody. Uh, hello to Appleton and Stevens Point, those campuses as well. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, my name is Joe Greer. I'm one of the pastors here at Celebration Church. In case you haven't seen my face before, I'm here. And uh, Pastor Mark is in Indiana, and the other guys are elsewhere tonight on a cruise, a laugh your way cruise in the Caribbean. And we're going to have one degree, minus one degree in the morning. So guess who's jealous of who? Right? Anyway, here we are tonight. Now, uh, so you guys might have remembered if some of you were here last spring, which seems like a long time ago, I know, uh, I did a series, a a teaching series on Wednesday nights on uh, uh, false Christian sects and and false religions. And uh, if you were here for some of that, you might remember some of it. I don't know. Uh, That's sex with S-E-C-T-S. I had to clarify that too last year. Uh, And during our our teaching sessions last year, uh, we saw that Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John taught a lot about false prophets coming and false teachers. And their mission was going to be to infiltrate the church uh, and influence the minds of these early believers. So Jesus and the early apostles did not waste any time denouncing and exposing these false teachers that were trying to weasel their way into the church at that time. And uh, they warned the church. This is from Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus by their fruit you will recognize them. And we went on, we defined what a sect or a cult is, which is any religious group which differs significantly in some one or more aspects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as normative expressions of religion in our total culture. A cult might also be defined as a group of people gathered around a specific person or that person's interpretation of the Bible. And we saw how false sects manipulate language and try to get a believer in Christ to accept that that sect is saying the very same things that Christians are saying. In almost every case concerning every major Christian doctrine, the false sects are guilty of misinterpreting the Bible. So we covered all of those last spring. We're going to move on. Tonight we're going to move into some of the, the world religions that you may or may not be familiar with. And I'm, I've got three main ones, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, and I'm going to try to cover all three. Oh, say, so I'm, I'm going to be going fast. 
And we will have a Q&A time at the end of the service tonight if time allows. So uh, we'll put my phone number up there on the, on the screen if you want to text me some questions uh, at the end of the service. As of 2012, we're going to talk about Buddhism first. There were an estimated uh, 376 million followers of Buddhism uh, worldwide. In the last century, it has become very popular in the West especially uh, to follow Buddhist teachings. Celebrity adherents to Buddhism include Jennifer Aniston, Orlando Bloom, David Bowie, Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Lopez, Joan Baez, Tina Turner, Richard Gere, and Harrison Ford. And those are just, that's just naming a few of them. In the past few decades, Americans have expressed their desire to dig deeper uh, into their spiritual needs and as a, as a result have become, in some cases, many cases, dissatisfied with Christianity. They feel that they want to seek truth and fulfillment in Eastern religions and that includes Buddhism. You may have friends that have become Buddhists over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, in order to appeal to our Western tastes, the language and the marketing for Buddhism and Hinduism has changed quite a bit. To make it more palatable to Western academics, especially in the fields of philosophy. So you go on a college campus today and a philosophy course may have, uh, may include subjects like Buddhism and Hinduism because on a college campus they've managed to translate that or change it from a religion to a philosophy. So then that, that falls into the parentheses of a, of a class on philosophy. And it's resulted in this growing presence of these two main religions on college campuses. 3,000 years ago, Buddhism started. Uh, Hinduism actually started before Buddhism did. Hinduism is kind of like the birth mother of Buddhism. Hinduism started in the Indus Valley in what is now Pakistan. Uh, the Indus River and its tributaries begin in the mountains of Tibet and they flow through northern India and northern Pakistan and south into southern Pakistan. And the Indus River basically divides the country of Pakistan into two, two halves. The nation of India actually gets its name from the Indus River. And the, nation, and the early Hindu religion was not actually called Hinduism, it was called Brahmanism, uh, referring to a, sect, a section of priests uh, who were Hindu priests at that time. And they had a very, very strict caste system. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all the details about the caste system tonight because it's, 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 it's a message all by itself. Uh, the, uh, the Hindus, or the Buddhists and the Hindus, descend from the Euro-Aryan people. It, it was a people group. Aryan uh, means noble people. Uh, who were a European Indo-speaking race which originated in what is today Kazakhstan and Persia or Iran. Uh, and they, these people invaded the Indus Valley in Pakistan 3,000 years ago and they introduced the caste system at that time and that kept the Aryan invaders separate from the people who were the native Indian people. Uh, it was a very convenient way for them to enslave these Indians and keep them their own race pure, which they felt they needed to do, and kept them from inbreeding. As Aryan dominance spread throughout the Indian subcontinent, uh, they, their belief in Brahmanism 
uh, really began to spread and their practice of the caste system began to spread. Didn't originate in India, it originated back with them in the Indo-Aryan culture. And it basically ensured that the poor remained poor and that descendants of the Aryans remained in power all those years. Today, we call this ancient culture and language the Indo-Aryans. And actually, the word Iran, the country's name, is derived from Aryan. Uh, since most of the Indo-Aryan invaders came from what is now Iran and Kazakhstan, just to the north of Iran. In the 19th and 20th century, certain scholars and political leaders began to use the term Aryan as a descriptor for a superior race of North European white people. And that's, uh, that resulted in the rise of Nazism. Uh, it is now so linked with Nazism that the term Aryan is no longer used to describe this other ancient culture. They are now referred to as Indo-Aryans. Uh, Hinduism preceded Buddhism by a couple of thousand years. After centuries of this enslavement, these Indian reformers began to make an impact in revolt against the caste system and liberation from Hinduism, and Buddha was one of those reformers. And by that time, the caste system and the Indo-Aryan religion and Hinduism had spread into what is now India, even though it didn't originate there. Buddha is actually a spiritual title. It's a title of enlightenment. It's not a proper name. It literally, literally means awakened one or enlightened one. Buddha was born sometime between 490 BC and 410 BC. He was the son of a chieftain of a tribe that was very close up into the Himalayan foothills near the country of Nepal that we know today. His birth name was Siddhartha Gautama, which later changed to Gautama Buddha, and he founded the Buddhist religion. We could say that Buddhism was founded as a response to the enslavement uh, and hopelessness that was felt by these people after hundreds and hundreds of years in northern India and Pakistan at the hands of these Indo-Aryan invaders and their religion, Brahmanism. Under Hinduism, the destiny of the masses was poverty and despair, and the wheel of samsara, or reincarnation, loomed constantly before them like a never-ending nightmare of suffering and death. This is from a book by Walter Martin, uh, uh, called the kingdom of the cults. And of course, they, they cover false religions in there as well. So there seemed to be no escape for these people from this fate of having to endure this endless reincarnation and succession of all these painful lives. You'd live one life and then you had to come back if you didn't get it right and you had to do it all over again. Uh, and, and, and you had to do this until your soul could be freed to merge into eternity with what they called the world soul or nirvana. Gautama Buddha was born into a nobility in his tribe and therefore he never had to endure the actual poverty and hopelessness of his own people but he was sensitive to it. It bothered him and it bothered him enough to where he actually as an, as an adult, a young adult, he abandoned his home, he abandoned his village, he abandoned his wife and children and he began to wander as an ascetic in search of the truth about life. He just left everything. And after seven years of wandering, he supposedly attained enlightenment as he sat under the bow tree or the tree of wisdom in the state of Bihar, what, what is now the state of Bihar in India. 
He sat under that tree and meditated for 49 days until he reached what he thought was nirvana. And he incorporated the idea of reincarnation into his new religion, uh, a concept that he borrowed from Hinduism, but he, uh, he modified it. And of course, he did it so that they wouldn't be pursuing the caste system and following the caste system in Buddhism. So his teaching can be summarized in short form like this. Uh, dig this definition of Buddhism. Birth is sorrow. Age is sorrow. Sickness is sorrow. Death is sorrow. And clinging to earthly things is sorrow. Birth and rebirth, the chain of reincarnation, result from the thirst of life together with passion and desire. Sorrow. Everything was sorrow to him. The only escape from this thirst, he said, was to follow the eightfold path. Right belief, right resolve, right word, right act, right life, right effort, right thinking, and right meditation. Whatever right is, of course, you know. His estimation of what was, what was right. Once a person achieves all eight of these goals in this path, that person achieves nirvana, which is the total absorption of his soul into what is called the oversoul or the universe. In reality, he was teaching basically the annihilation of the soul, not the absorption of the soul, but the annihilation of it, being just sucked into nothingness after you achieve nirvana. So the end result of Buddhism is that the person actually ceases to exist. Isn't that a joyful ending? So one thing common to classical Buddhism is Zen Buddhism and I I Ching and other similar uh, I Ching and other similar Eastern religions, none of them acknowledge the existence of a personal God. In these Eastern religions, you do not ever develop a personal relationship with a personal God. They do not believe that we can address this God as Heavenly Father. God in their belief system is an unknowable essence. He's He's maybe out there, but we will never know him and we will certainly never relate to him. And as far as a Buddhist is concerned, to see God is to see oneself. And all of the rest of creation, that's God. God as a person cannot be defined for them and so as a result, I'm God. I make the calls. Eastern Buddhism uh, over toward the Orient is called Maha, Maha, Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism which continues today in countries like China, Tibet, India, Sri Lanka, Japan, and the rest of Southeast Asia. The Dalai Lama, I'm sure you've heard of him, from Tibet is considered by present-day Buddhists to in the East to be one of many gods who are earthly types of who will eventually manifest as a final earthly Buddha or Bodhisattva or savior of the world. Zen Buddhism comes from a Japanese branch of Buddhism or a school of meditation. The Zen school follows the teachings of Kasyapa or the doctrine of the Buddhist mind. Zen is popular in the West because it teaches that you can basically achieve your nirvana now. And who wouldn't want that? So it's popular. That's why you hear a lot about Zen and Zen masters and Zen Buddhism, especially in Hollywood. Why? Well, because you can have your nirvana right now, baby. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to reincarnate 3,000 times. It's yours for the taking. For the practitioners of Zen Buddha, this very moment right now is the immediate experience of reality, past time, 
and embracing all dimensions. In Zen, there are no doctrines, there are no belief systems, no books, formulas that one can follow. It all comes to you in your mind. If I am asked, I'm quoting from uh, an author named Suzuki, uh, Introduction to Zen Buddhism. If I am asked, he said, what Zen teaches, I would answer, Zen teaches nothing. We teach ourselves. Zen merely points the way. Uh, And from Walter Martin's book, Zen has no God to worship, no ceremonial rites to observe, no future abode to which the dead are destined, and last of all, Zen has no soul whose welfare is to be looked after by somebody else and whose immortality is a matter of intense concern with some people. Every, every basic belief that you and I have about mankind and our soul and the fact that we are spirit as well as body, just throw that out the window when it comes to Buddhism. Miscellaneous doctrinal comparisons between us and Buddhism. Let's talk about salvation. For Buddhists, there is only self-salvation. Zen takes us to an absolute realm wherein there are no antitheses of any sort. In other words, there's no right and wrong at all. They don't exist in Zen. In Zen, we bear the whole responsibility for our actions and no sage, capital S, meaning God, or a teacher of God, or, of course, Jesus Christ, whomsoever he be, has the right to encroach on our free will. Okay, so in Zen Buddhism, there is no authority. There is no right and wrong. And there's no one there. They don't believe there's anyone there who can tell them what to do. What I decide is right is is my God. What I decide to do is my okay path. Sin and evil in Buddhism. Well, we believe in sin and evil in Christianity because we see it unfold every day. We know it has great capability and great ability. Even in my life, I see it. And how can you deny that reality? But in Buddhism, there is nothing good, nothing bad, nothing inherently long or short, nothing subjective and nothing objective, regardless of what Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Buddhism, there is no such thing. They don't even talk about it. Because of what we've just seen regarding Buddhist belief, there are three conclusions that we can come to in comparing Buddhism to Christianity. Number one, Buddhism negates a personal God. Number two, it denies the reality of sin due to the absence of any absolute standard of right and wrong, revealed law and holiness. And third, it rejects the necessity of personal redemption. Obviously, if you're going to reject the idea of sin, then who needs to be saved? Why would you need redemption from the penalty of sin? That redemption, of course, to us, revealed in Jesus Christ for them, there's no need for it. So a couple of final comments on Zen Buddhism. In a world that is faced with deprivation, and I'm quoting from Walter Martin's book book again, in a world faced with deprivation, hunger, disease, death, and the ever-present shadow of nuclear warfare, the denial of such reality borders on a criminal. And it negates the two basic principles upon which all spiritual reality exists, which are the first two great commandments to you and me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Buddhism denies all of that. What is the necessity for it? 
it doesn't exist for the Buddhist. For the followers of Zen, it is love of self first, last, and forever. You love yourself, that is God, which releases one from spiritual responsibility and substitutes intellectual enlightenment for conversion. The absence of concern for other people and, and for their peace with God, it doesn't exist in Buddhism because it's not a reality to them. Nobody's in danger because there are no absolutes. So why should I be concerned? So that's kind of a quick summary of Buddhism. We're gonna move on. Remember, we got question time at the end, so I'll do the best I can to. Uh, and this, of course, this will be on the Celebration Church podcast and the website later on. So if, if you want a refresher in it, you can look at that. Hinduism. Okay, so as we saw from the origins of Buddhism, Hinduism evolved from the Indo-Aryan culture several thousand years ago. They migrated from Kazakhstan and Persia or Iran into the Indian subcontinent and settled in what is now northern India. Some Hindu scholars refer to Hinduism as the one eternal religion of India. And you hear that a lot over there because they really believe it. And about probably 90% of the people in India are Hindus. There are many sects and manifestations with different beliefs, and modern Hinduism is a synthesis of all of them. There's so many sects, so many different beliefs within Hinduism, and you, you know, I didn't realize that either until I went there, and I, you, know, you run into all these different versions of it everywhere that you go. But uh, Hinduism is, is, uh, is divided into three major classifications, the abstract monists, which stress the philosophical oneness of the universe instead of religious or the- theistic ideas. In other words, their version of Hinduism is basically a course in philosophy. It's not really a religion. It's not really worshiping of anything. And uh, if, has anybody heard of Transcendental Meditation? Some of you hippies that grew up in the 60s. Uh, <laughs> Transcendental Meditation, TM. Okay, well, it was really popular in the 60s and 70s among everybody that was seeking uh, some sort of enlightenment through religion. And, but it's basically Transcendental Meditation. It, how come nobody raised your hand? I don't get that. <laughs> come on, I'm not the only old one in here. All right, finally a few honest hands. Yes. Vishnuites is the second version, the second major major, uh, division of Hinduism, and it is devoted to the worship of the god Vishnu, uh, who has, of course, many different manifestations, but he is their supreme form of divinity. And then finally, the Shivites, who is devoted to the worship of the god Shiva as the highest form of divinity. So those are your three major ones. Uh, And then uh, you have transcendental meditation, which I mentioned earlier, uh, kind of a a current example of the abstract monist. Uh, If you've heard of the International Society of Krishna Consciousness, uh, that's another name for Krishna uh, and uh, the um, Society of Krishna. Uh, They they consider the supreme manifestation of the Hindu god Vishnu, uh, that Krishna is that person, and so they are actually Vishnuites, even though they call themselves Hare Krishnas. Of course, with all of these manifestations and differences, it's kind of hard to nail down a clear definition of what Hinduism is. So, here's the question. What is the essence of Hinduism or a definition for it? Well, there are orthodox Hindus who actually deny the existence of God. There are others who don't deny God, 
but they relegate God to a second place as a secondary or illusory phase of absolute. Figure that one out. And what remains as necessary to Hindu belief? What do you got to do? What's, what do you have to do to be a good, dedicated Hindu? Well, they have two doctrines, the, the doctrines of rebirth and the eternal soul. Uh, the picture of the world as a place where the immortal spirit within man is virtually endlessly implicated in the round of reincarnation. So they're, they're the ones that came up with the reincarnation originally, that you go through life and you may start out like a roach, you know, and then you die, and then you come back as a mouse, and if you're a good mouse, you, get, you die, and then you come back as a little higher form of creature and work your way up into being a human being, and then hopefully as a human being, you continue to work your way up to be a better person. So uh, it, it, this, this particular philosophy has dominated the Hindu imagination for 3,000 years. It's, it goes way back, way back before Christianity. Their concept of God there is no single Hindu idea of God. Hindu belief manifests in different ways regarding the person of God. Monism uh, believe that all existence is one substance, but they don't believe that, that, they don't call that God. They just say substance. Pantheism, all existence is divine to the pantheist. And so everything is God. Panentheism, God is in creation as a soul is in the body. Animism, God or gods, live in non-human objects such as trees, rocks, animals, etc. And then you have other versions uh, that are more centered on a person of God. Polytheism, where there are many gods. Henotheism, there is one God that we worship among the many who do exist. And then monotheism, which is what we have as Christians. Monotheism believes in the existence of only one God and we worship him. So there's all these theisms that are out there, and Hinduism kind of spreads itself across a large part of those. Then you've heard of the word karma and samsara. Samsara, there's a salon in Appleton, a hair salon in Appleton named samsara, and I never knew what that stood for. Now I do. Karma and samsara. Samsara is the Hindu word for reincarnation. And their definition, all souls are eternal and accountable for their own actions. Karma, which is the debt of one's bad actions, must be atoned for in order for one to escape the wheel of samsara or reincarnation, which is the soul inhabiting successive human bodies. Or transmigration, where the soul inhabits various human, animal, plants, and or inanimate objects. Okay, so you gotta pay. You gotta pay for your bad deeds, and you do that through a series of lifetimes until you get it right. So the question tonight is, which, which one are you on tonight? <laughs> salvation. What do Hindus believe about salvation? There are three major paths to the Hindu version of salvation. Number one is called karma marga or method, or it is the way of what they call disinterested action. In other words, I'm disinterested, I'm just going to live out my life the way it is, I'm not gonna do anything to try to save myself, and hopefully it works. Kind of salvation by default. It might work and it might not. Bhakti marga, the way of devotion, which is achieving self-realization through ritualistic sacrifice and discipline 
And then Janana Marga, the path of knowledge or mystical insight, achieving self-realization through intuitive awareness and mystical insight. And of course, that would be more rare because then you have to become a holy person or a monk or somebody to go out in. We would see these people wandering the streets in India. They still do. And they are devoted to that third uh, one. We also, the, the shopkeeper uh, in the hotel that we stay at when, when I go to India is a Hindu man. And he would be an observer of the second one here, Bhakti Marga, because he really is a sincere Hindu. And every morning without fail, when you come downstairs from the hotel into his restaurant, he is there at the, at the, uh, at the cash register and he has all of his gods up in front and he's burning incense and he's, and he's clanging little cymbals and he's saying prayers and he's singing songs to his god every morning like clockwork. And the whole restaurant is just filled with this incense. Sometimes almost chokes you right. It's so thick. And, but he does it because he believes this is number one, this is his salvation. And if he doesn't do it, he can't be saved. And number two, that his business will be blessed if he does it so the gods will smile down on him. Uh, it's very sad. But um, this, is, this is where he's at. This is his life. In all of its forms, Hinduism denies the biblical trinity. Hinduism denies the deity of Jesus Christ and the doctrines of atonement, meaning salvation, or sin, or salvation by grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They deny all of it because there's no need for it in their mind. It replaces resurrection with reincarnation and grace and faith are replaced by human works. You work your way in. You work your way to salvation. You cannot receive anything from God because, of course, we don't really know who he is. And so there is no personal relationship with him. Transcendental meditation uh, was uh, uh, defined by its founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. By the way, he's the guy that the Beatles went and saw in India, if you remember the Beatles. Anybody remember the Beatles? They went to India when they started getting their spiritual enlightenment and he was the guy that they studied under in India and then they brought him back to the West. And that's how TM got its roots, it's through him in the West. He, uh, he describes uh, TM as a religious exercise or philosophy designed to relieve stress and bring peace to the inner man. That's, that's as far as it went. Um, those who advance in this practice are taught that they eventually graduate into astral projection, which enables their soul to leave their body, and of course, in some cases, levitation, where their body breaks the bounds of gravity and lifts up. Nobody's ever seen that, but they say it can be done. I don't think so. Um, their belief about God, TM, uh, is pantheistic. The goal of the practitioner is to lose one's personality in the oneness of their God. TM attempts to rob God of personality and instead describes him as being eternal truth or absolute of eternal freedom. Those are the names of the titles given to God. He's never, we call him Jehovah, Lord God Almighty. We have names for our God because we have a personal relationship with him. In Hinduism, transcendental meditation, there is no name for God other than these phrases that they use to try to describe him. Uh, for uh, TM, Jesus Christ uh, is completely ignored, maintained that a person can become just as enlightened as Jesus Christ was by putting into practice the TM techniques. 
Nowhere do they teach that Jesus is the Son of God or that he is God manifest in the flesh. And since God is not a person, of course we wouldn't believe that. How do they get salvation? Salvation is coming to the realization that I am in union with the creative intelligence. Again, no personal name for God, just the force out there. And I'm one with him or it. And therefore, that's how I come to my salvation. And the answer to every problem, every human problem, for a a person practicing transcendental meditation is that there is no problem. Let a man perceive this truth and then he is without problems. So, if I don't believe I have any problems, I really don't. It's an illusion. Isn't that awesome? You guys, we could walk out of here tonight believing that we don't have any problems and that would wipe them all out, wouldn't it? That's their approach. Then you have the Arhari Krishnas. It is a modern school of Vishnu Hinduism uh, developed from the teachings of Kaitanya in the 15th century, taught that Krishna was the supreme personality of the Godhead and founded by Abhai Karan de Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada around 1950. It was started early in the 15th century and then really got its going in 1950. After his death, there was a lot of turmoil in the leadership of the Hare Krishnas. Uh, there were indictments, convictions, and various leaders for crimes ranging, ranging from tax evasion through drug dealing to murder. They were a delightful bunch of people. Then uh, for the Hare Krishna, God is monotheistic, taken from ISKCON's primary book, the Bhagavad Gita. with Krishna as the supreme personality of the Godhead. So they are monotheistic, but they are monotheistic with Krishna as being their chief God. Lord Krishna is the total personality of Godhead himself, according to their writings. Jesus Christ is Krishna's son. So they acknowledge that Jesus existed, but that he was Krishna's son, and that he was no more unique than any other man who strives to attain Krishna consciousness. Jesus is not the unique son of God, nor is he God in the flesh. And finally, their take on salvation, it is obtained by removing or paying off one's karmic debt through through devotion to Krishna and right actions performed over multiple reincarnations, which we already explored in Buddhism. All right, so that's kind of a little summary of a couple of three different kinds of Hinduism and uh, what they believe and where they go. Now we're going to talk about Islam. We are, I told you, we're going to race through this tonight. Uh, Islam. Islam is the second largest religion in the world after Christianity. They have 1,800,000,000 followers, and that's just as of about four or five years ago. I'm sure there's many more now. The primary statement of faith in Islam is called the Shahada, or confession. And that goes like this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet or messenger of Allah. Entire countries are ruled by Islamic law and teaching, and the U.S. has been experiencing an enormous influx of Muslim university students and professionals for the last few decades. Uh, There are examples of uh, nations that are run by Islamic law would be Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, 
any of the countries on the Saudi Peninsula, Iran, those countries all are run by Islamic law. That's, that's how they develop their constitution. That's how they develop their system of punishment and incarceration. And it's, it's brutal. It's brutal in many cases. Uh, definitions within Islam, just so that we can kind of, I know you see, you've probably seen these words as you've read the news over time. Islam means submission. Arabic word that means submission. Islam is the proper term for the Muslim religion. Muslim is the term that is given to a follower of Islam and it means one who submits. It is incorrect to refer to a Muslim as a Mohammedan. Why? Because that implies that the person who worships that way is worshiping Muhammad, not Allah. This form of idolatry would not be permitted in Islam. That would be, if you were to call them a Mohammedan, you're basically accusing them of idolatry. So that's why we don't want to use that term. Muslim is, is a proper term. The Muslim submits to the will of Allah as revealed by Muhammad. Let's talk about the term Allah. That is the term that they give to God. This word means the unique God who possesses all the attributes of perfection and beauty in their infinitude. Muslims feel strongly that the English word God does not convey the real meaning of the word Allah. It means more to them than what our term God means. Of course, they're reading into our meaning of God too. So God, when I say God, I love you, it means a whole lot more to me than what the, the Muslim might think it does. So uh, breakdown in communication there. Muhammad, uh, he was an Arab man, uh, born in the city of Mecca in A.D., 570, 570 years after Jesus was on earth. Muhammad means the one who is praised. And he claimed that he was the prophet to restore true religion and the praise of Allah throughout the world, just as Jesus Christ was a prophet in his time for his people. The Quran is the newest spelling of Quran, and it means the recitation. It is a collection of revelations that were supposedly given by Allah through his archangel, Gabriel, to Muhammad and preserved as the Islamic scripture. Muslims believe in the law of Moses, the Psalms of David, and the Injil, or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, they actually believe in our four gospels, the story and preaching and teaching of Jesus. The difference is, though, that they believe that all of those scriptures that we claim as ours were superseded and corrected through Muhammad and that the Bible that is used today by Christians and Jews is a distorted view of the corrected Islamic scriptures. So wherever the Bible contradicts Islam, the Muslims say that the Bible is incorrect because it's been changed and it's been corrupted. So that's how they get around some of the things that are taught in the Gospels that Jesus said about himself being God and being the Son of God. They would never say that. So if we try to argue that point with a Muslim or try to correct them on a point like that, they're going to say, yes, aha, but your version of the Bible was corrupted. We can't accept that. Surah. Uh, surah is a division in the Quran like the chapters in the Bible. The Quran contains 114 revelations 
composed in one surah or chapter. Uh, the longest surahs appear first and then they grow shorter as you read through the Quran. There are also the hadith. Uh, these are the collected traditions or the supposed words and deeds of Muhammad. There is the term caliph, which means deputy in Arabic, and it refers to the main leaders in Islam. You, you heard about the ISIS guys in northern Iraq and Syria trying to set up a caliphate, which is taken from the word caliph, which means deputy. In other words, they wanted to set up their own monarchy with a caliph in northern Iraq, ruled by Islamic law. Uh, they believe that the caliph is, is, is an immediate successor to Muhammad. And then you have the word in Iran, Ayatollah. Ayatollah is a spiritual master or spiritual political leader in another version of Islam called Shiite Islam. Then there are two schools of Islam, Sunni and Shiite. 90% of Muslims are Sunni. They accept the first four caliphs after Muhammad and no others. They only have a total of five caliphs in Sunni Islam. Shiites are the early Muslims who chose to follow the teachings of, of Ali, who was the son-in-law of the prophet Muhammad, who, they believe, inherited the leadership of Islam after Muhammad's death. For Shiites, their leaders were called imams, or the first 12 they believe that the 12th Imam, also named Muhammad, disappeared as a child in AD 878, and that eventually that child, Muhammad the 12th, will return as a Messiah who is titled Mahdi. Okay? He is also called the hidden Imam. The country of Iran is 95% Shiite Muslim, and the government is an Islamic Republic. There are other countries that have significant Shiite populations, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. So, the history of Islam. Well, there are a lot of Arab tribes that trace their ancestry back to, believe it or not, and Pastor Mark has mentioned this before, the first son of Abraham, Ishmael, the first son uh, that came along before Isaac. Arab refers to nomads or Bedouins who lived in the desert areas of the Middle East in tents and moved around in search of pasture for their sheep and goats. Each nomadic group <coughs> excuse me, had a leader who was called a sheikh uh, who had no more power than the other elders in the clan, but he was designated as the sheikh because he kind of had a royal ancestry. So whoever could trace their ancestry back the farthest to a figure of royalty as a nomad, that was the sheikh by default. Before Muhammad, these Arabs were polytheistic and they worshipped gods and beings who they thought lived in trees and fountains and sacred stones. They were animists, in other words. Their highest deity, the one to whom all other deities submitted, was called Allah. Early sub-deities had names in Islam, such as, or in this, these tribes before Islam, uh, the sun god, Lot, Uzzah, the mighty one, Man, Amat, a moon god. They had all kinds of gods going on in, in the Arab Peninsula in the Middle East before Islam came along. 
Muhammad was born in Mecca, as I said, near the Middle West Coast region of the Arabian Peninsula. Mecca was a large commercial city in those days, famous for the Kaaba, a huge black cube in the middle of the city that contained 360 idols of their main gods, as well as something called the Black Stone. So if you've ever seen, every year Muslims make their pilgrimage to Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, you'll see pictures of them marching around the black stone, this huge cube, and they're throwing stones at it because they're, and that's their version of throwing stones at the devil. So that, that black stone represents the devil because in the old days before Islam, that, that stone, that big altar monument contained all of their pagan idols and they worshiped there. After the death of Muhammad's mother and father, he was sent to live with his grandfather. He provided a kind of a foster fa- uh, mother uh, and uh, uh, a foster situation for Muhammad. Her name was Halima. And then when Muhammad was 25 years old, he married a 40-year-old widow, Khadija, and he stayed with her for 25 years. And he had two sons who died in infancy and four daughters. After Khadijah died, he married another widow and also a six-year-old girl named Aisha. By the time he died, Muhammad had 12 wives and two concubines, and one of his daughters was a daughter-in-law. Uh, in Surah 4, 4, 4 verse 3, chapter, or Surah 4, verse 3, Surah is, again, their word for chapter in the Quran, a Muslim is limited to four wives. That's 4.3. But in Surah 4.31, marriage to a daughter-in-law is prohibited, even though Muhammad married his daughter-in-law. Then later on, in Surah 33, verse 36, Muhammad adjusted those prohibitions in accordance with a new revelation from God. And it gave Muslims permission for more than four wives and permission to marry their daughter-in-laws. Shooting from the hip, Muhammad. He claims to have received his first series of angelic revelations in AD 610. These were messages straight from God through the angel Gabriel and they were conveyed to him and he gathered this small following around him and then he became the subject of assassins by enemy tribes, remember pagan tribes and he's coming up with this new religion and telling these guys they're all wrong and so they tried to assassinate him in 621 AD. He claimed that Gabriel had warned him about those attacks and that he had told him to go to the city of Yathrib for protection. Yathrib is currently named Medina. His pilgrimage to Medina marks the current beginning of the Muslim calendar. He's fleeing for his life to Medina. It wasn't long before he gained control of the town of Medina and established the Ummah, which is a theocracy or religious dictatorship. So when we say that these countries are controlled by Islamic law, that's what we mean. These are religious dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, Iran, what have you. And they model their government after what Muhammad did in the city of Medina. Between 621 and 632, he gathered 3,000 fighters, formed an army, began wiping out various Jewish tribes who were then living in the area around Medina. In AD 630, he conquered Mecca and he died in 632. His successors began to spread all over the place, conquered large areas of the Middle East, 
Palestine, Syria, Iraq, Persia, Egypt, Libya, Spain, Western India, Crete, Sicily, Ghana, and West Africa, uh, all that between uh, AD 633 and AD 1076. Islam continued to spread all in, those, in all of those centuries into Europe and the Balkans and Turkey. Early in Islam's history, Muhammad taught followers not to compel people of other religions to become Muslims. Let there be no compulsion in religion, he wrote in Surah 2. But then his message and following weren't exactly catching fire <laughs> because he had told them, don't compel people to become Muslims. And uh, that led to animosity on, uh, in his followers toward the what they called unbelievers. And then there was more urgency on the part of the Muslims regarding the conversion of non-Muslims. And by chapter five in the Quran, he changed it. He got a new revelation from God. Fight and slay the idolaters, the Jews and the Christians, wherever you find them. And seize them and besiege them and lie in wait for them. So in just a matter of two chapters, three chapters, his whole tune changed. Why? Well, because he didn't have any followers. They weren't growing fast enough. Well, then we'll convert them by force. The punishment of those who wage war against God and his apostle and strive with might and main for mischief through the land is execution or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides or exile from the land. That's in the Quran. So the tune changed a little bit from don't compel anybody to cut their hands and feet off. <laughs> kind of a dramatic change. The Jews in those days were, were called people of the book, but they were also described as people who would listen to any lie. Christians were enemies in chapter five, and Muslims were ordered not to have Jews or Christians as friends in chapter five. The legacy of Islamic persecution and destruction goes on and on, and it will take your breath away when you see it for what it is. The historical example of the Medinan Jews, they were all slaughtered. To the more recent examples, 50,000 Greeks and Armenians massacred in 1822, 10,000 Armenians and Nestorians in 1850, 11,000 Maronites and Syrians in 1860, 15,000 Bulgarians in 1876, 10,000 Armenians in 1984, 325,000 Armenians from 1895 to 1908, 30,000 Armenians in 1909, and 80% of the Armenian population, 1.5 million people, wiped out between 1915 and 1918. This was the religious persecution that uh, has been a very frequent occurrence under Islam. In the 80s and 90s, Muslims in northern Sudan, this is very recent, were either starving or selling into slavery any black Christians they came across or animists in the south of Sudan. Oppression against non-Muslims in general and Christians in particular still occurs, still occurs in countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, Libya, Mauritania, Nigeria, and Tanzania. In 1994, Iran began a campaign of persecution against Christians that has not stopped, especially against the Assemblies of God denomination. Today, severe persecution 
or suppression against Christians continues in these Muslim-dominated countries, the ones I mentioned, plus Mindanao Island in the, in the Philippines, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, especially under ISIS, Iraq, Afghanistan, Indonesia, Malaysia, parts of Nigeria, and the Congo. I'm currently in communication with a, a man who became a Christian in Pakistan uh, in the 1980s who was a part of our ministry over there who has been hiding and running for his life ever since. He's, he is messaging me on Facebook every day. Help me get out of here. He's appealing to the UN, he and his eight members of his family. I mean, it's, he's so desperate. And there's a target on his back. There's a contract on his life. They know, the Taliban know about him. And he's in hiding and he can't work a job because he has to stay in hiding. It's, it's just desperate. So you have all these countries, Malaysia, Nigeria, Congo, Somalia, uh, these, and, and that's kind of, and, and, and just mentioning those countries, I'm leaving out the entire Arabian Peninsula. Christianity is absolutely forbidden in Saudi Arabia, Yemen, United Arab Emirates, and Oman. It's, it's, just, a, it's just turned radical over the centuries. God. What do they believe about God? Muslims believe there is one God, Allah. There is no trinity for the Muslim. And the idea of there being a trinity to the Muslim is blasphemy. They believe that God is merciful and compassionate, but also that he is very impersonal and distant from us. He is angry at us all of the time. He is angry at us for our sins and almost impossible to appease. You cannot connect with the God of Islam. He's angry with you already. All you can do is try to appease him. Islam does not teach that we can have a personal relationship with God. They see God as too distant, too wrathful for there to be such a relationship. So while Christians are described in the Bible as heirs of God and children of God and friends of God, you do not have that vocabulary in Islam. The Muslim God is transcendent, meaning he rises above and he's higher than any human existence. He is unknowable. He is untouchable. He is neither physical nor is he spirit. He is something other for them. And I've never read a, an adequate description of what they mean by that. What do they think about Jesus Christ? For them, Jesus is one of many prophets. You read that in chapter four and five in the Quran. And the prophet Muhammad supersedes Jesus in his authority and revelation. O people of the scripture, Muhammad wrote, do not exaggerate in your religion nor utter aught considering Allah, save the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah and his word which he conveyed to Mary and a spirit from him. There was no godhood for Jesus in the, in the mind of Muhammad and his followers. And then this, the Messiah, son of Mary, was no other than a messenger. Messengers, the like of whom had passed away before him. And his mother was a saintly woman and they both used to eat earthly food. So that's what they have to say about our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus was not the son of God nor was Jesus part of the Trinity because there is no Trinity. For the, for the Muslim, Jesus was a simple Jewish slave upon whom God showed great favor 
And then in contradiction, in later, earlier in the, in the book, <laughs> in the Quran, he wasn't a slave. So Muhammad never made up his mind about whether Jesus was a slave or not. So it's contradictory. Those two quotes there I have up on the screen. Then he said uh, in, in 43.5, he's nothing but a slave on whom we bestowed favor and we, this is God speaking, made him a pattern for the children of Israel. The Messiah will never scorn to be a slave unto Allah nor will the favored, nor will the favored angels. Those are the quotes from those two places. In one place he's a slave, the next place he's not a slave. Jesus did not atone for anybody's sins, even though Islam teaches that he was, Jesus himself, was sinless. They teach that Jesus did perform miracles and that he was the Messiah, but that he was not killed or crucified by the Jews, only that he made it appear that way. It was an illusion that Jesus pulled off. He didn't really die, and it wasn't really him up on the cross. You can find that in those chapters in the Quran that are up on the screen. And remember, he says, when the angel said, O Mary, lo, Allah giveth thee glad tidings of a word from him whose name is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, illustrious in the world and the hereafter, and one of those brought near unto Allah, and because of their saying, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, Allah's messenger, they slew him not, nor crucified him. It just appeared so unto them, and lo, those who disagree concerning it are in doubt thereof. So clearly states in the Quran, they do not believe that Jesus died on a cross, that it was an illusion. They do not believe Jesus died on a cross, but that somehow Judas Iscariot was miraculously substituted for Jesus on that cross. Another teaching is that God delivered Jesus from the hands of the Jews before they could crucify him and that Jesus was taken bodily into heaven before he could be crucified. <laughs> so they've even got three or four different stories. Contradicting that, Surah 19 says that he did indeed die and that he would be resurrected. <laughs> it's just crazy. And that quote that I have up there from there. Okay. A comparison between Jesus and Muhammad is taught in the Quran. They believe Jesus did miracles, but Muhammad did not. They believe Jesus was sinless, but that Muhammad sinned and he needed forgiveness. Uh, those quotes there. Uh, they believe Jesus was called Messiah and born of a virgin, and yet Muhammad was called the greatest prophet, greater than Jesus. Regarding sin and salvation, Muslims are taught that all have sinned, including Muhammad. The difference is the way to salvation for them is to fulfill the works of the five pillars of the faith. Uh, and uh, those five pillars are recite the Shahada, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Then the second uh, recitation of five daily prayers, including genuflection and prostration in the direction of Mecca, the holy city. So that's what you see when you see them praying on their rugs, when they take a break from work during the middle of the day or whatever, wherever they are in the world, they are facing Mecca and saying their prayers and they do that five times a day. Almsgiving, duty of giving certain percentage of one's income to help others. This is not charity. They're doing this because they want to be saved. It's part of their salvation. Fasting, during the whole month of Ramadan, you've heard of Ramadan and their fast, sunrise to sunset every day, atoning for their sins over the previous year, and finally making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Those five pillars of the, of the Muslim faith, that's what they believe they have to do to earn salvation. Uh, jihad is sometimes referred to them as the, by them as the sixth pillar 
of the Muslim faith, jihad meaning holy war against unbelievers, but it is not widely accepted among most Muslims. It, for most Muslims, jihad means their individual struggle to remain righteous. It's like you and I battling the flesh every day. This is kind of like, that's their interpretation of what it's like to battle the flesh. And then when a Muslim says jihad, for most of them, that's what they mean. They don't mean coming and bombing America. Uh, but for others, as you and I know, it means literal warfare against any unbelievers, non-Muslims. And that's what the radicals use as their excuse for any militant act against a secular or non-Muslim nation or people group. All right. So now uh, we're going to flash my phone number up on the screen and um, just go ahead and uh, text me. Uh, and let's, uh, let's see what questions you have. I might or might not be able to answer your questions, okay? So bummed that you got to Islam and then it froze. Tim, I guess they lost the signal. Did you guys lose the signal over in Stevens Point? For the Muslim, what does God look like and is Jesus in the Quran? Well, we talked a little bit about that and for the Muslim, we don't, they have no clue what God looks like. They believe he's so distant and far away from us that they can't see him and you can't imagine him. Uh, what does God look like and then was Jesus in the Quran? We did discuss that and he is, his name is in there and he is uh, described as Messiah. Okay. Any other questions? Any, how about anybody here tonight? You want to holler one out? Yeah, Lori? Um, over in India, it seems like the Christians are being attacked more and more. Yeah. They call them radical Hindus. Now, what, yeah. what, what, is a, what is a radical Hindu and why do they feel that they want to attack Christians? You know, they, they have all kinds of Hindus over there. You have your right-wing Hindus and your more moderate Hindus and the right-wing Hindus over there, they're, man, I mean, they're, they're on it. Uh, and the particular state of Gujarat where my friends Sushil and Susan, my friends live, is very radical Hindu. And you've got to keep a very low profile there. Why, I don't know. But they are just out against Christianity and they're out to snuff it out. No apologies. So you've got to keep a real low profile. Uh, let's look and see what else we got here. Do you have a website or a print off of this PowerPoint? Um, I'll, I'll put it up on the, uh, it, it'll be on the, uh, it'll be on the uh, podcast when, uh, when we're able to get it together, so it'll be there. Uh, is the practice of yoga a form of Hindu worship? No, not necessarily. I mean, some of the yoga exercises that you do at the YMCA have nothing to do with worshiping a Hindu god. They just are really good exercises from what I hear. <laughs> I haven't done them yet. Uh, are movie stars Buddhists mainly or Zen Buddhists? I don't know. That's a good question. All I've heard, most of them are Zen Buddhists, I think. Um, good signal here in point. So evidently they do have a signal there, Tim. I don't know what they meant by losing the signal. Uh, can we have access to your PowerPoint? Okay. Yep, 
it'll be up there. Is heaven truly everything we want it to be? Uh, well, according to the word of God, it's beyond your wildest imagination. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Do you think that Muslims are having conversations like this regarding Christians? They absolutely are. They are taught against Christianity from the time they're this small. So they have those conversations every day against why we are evil uh, people of the devil. Uh, And due to what they believe in the gospel, how can we influence a Muslim to change over? Uh, You know, the best way to engage a Muslim is to, to befriend them. Uh, you're not going to convert them to Christianity based on one conversation or your, uh, your expertise in the Bible or what I told you tonight. That can't happen. It won't happen that way. But, but, but you can be a friend and you can befriend a Muslim person uh, if you know one or of one and become their friend for life. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to get saved like three years from now either It just means you're going to become a friend for life and stay faithful to them and model Christianity to them and maybe and pray like crazy for them. And then maybe at some point they'll begin to ask you questions about why are you so happy? Why are you so at peace? How is it that you have forgiveness of sins, but we don't have that here? You know, questions like that might happen. So you befriend a Muslim person, there's no guarantees that they're going to become a Christian. And you can't go into it that way. You have to go into it as a friend. And that's how Jesus would do it. Jesus would befriend them because he loves people. And of course he wants them saved. And of course he wants their sins forgiven. But you've got to start somewhere with people. Um, that's how you influence. Yes. Yes, Cheryl. Music? I've never heard that Muslims, I've never heard that. They're not allowed to do Western music, any music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cheryl's question was, "How come Muslim? You're talking about Muslims? Yeah, I don't know, honestly, because I've seen some Muslim festivals where there's a whole lot of music going on. So, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um." We've got a few more minutes here. Let me just look at some of these others. Uh, How did the violent and corrupt version of Islam come about in this age? Uh, I mean, it has its birth. Its its violence has its birth all the way back at the beginning, you know, and so it's just carried forward. You're always going to have violent people in any religion. Even Christianity had the Crusades. You know, then these were bloodthirsty men who went off on a mission from God into the Middle East to convert the heathens in the Middle East and just slaughtered all kinds of people in the name of Christ. Uh, Were they examples of Christianity? I think Paul was probably rolling over in his grave. You know, so no, they were not representative. And you have the same thing in Islam. It's, It's hard to describe, but let's face it, men are men, women are women, and we have sin in our lives, and we're gonna do sinful things, and there are certain cultures and certain groups that they breed violence and they they're led by people with very little conscience and they just are violent for violence sake and that happens to be part of the muslim culture in some parts of the world not everywhere but some of the groups that have 
attack the United States, we certainly understand them that way. What was written first, the Old Testament, Buddhism, or Hinduism? Well, Hinduism would have had their books way before the New Testament was written, or the Old Testament was written. Not way before, but before. Um, You have to remember, Moses is the understood author of the first five books of the Bible. And their books existed before Moses. So they predate uh, Judaism. Uh, Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Why is the West so full of apologists of Islam? Um, In other words, a lot of people come to the defense of Islam in Western culture, and honestly, I don't understand it myself. I don't understand why there are so many apologists for this uh, religion here, but it's, it's... it has more apologists than Christianity does, certainly in the secular news media. I don't get it. I don't understand why. But it really is. You're right. It's very full of it. Is the practice of meditation wrong if you're not doing it for a religion? Well, like, like I was saying about yoga, it, it's all in your mind. What are you doing it for? Are you doing it there? Are you like worshiping Krishna while you're doing your yoga? Are you worshiping Krishna while you're doing meditation? Then of course the Christian wouldn't do that. But for meditation, meditation is one of the Christian disciplines. And uh, when I teach my Christian disciplines class in the next, couple of, in the next month, uh, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the fact that Christian, this is something God wants us to do, is to have quiet moments with him and read the scriptures and meditate on the scriptures. So it's very important for us to meditate. I think the word has been stolen from us uh, by Hindus and others, and I think it's not right. I think you can, you can meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and I think that's very beneficial. Uh, do these three religions play nice together? <laughs> no, they do not. Uh, do they agree to disagree enough to work together against Christians? No, they do not. Uh, Hindus, uh, I would say, probably in the millions have been slaughtered by Muslims in India, especially after India declared its independence in 1948. The story of what happened there, watch the movie Gandhi, and you'll get a full story history of what happened between Hindus and Muslims in those days. It was awful. And to this day, the city that I visited frequently over in India, Ahmedabad, still has wars and street wars break out between Muslims and Hindus all the time. And when they go to war, there is bloodshed and there are thousands of people killed, even to this day. It's very bad. They're not united against Christianity, in other words. What do you feel is more of a threat to Christians, Islam or Buddhists? Should we be friends with either? I would say be friends with all of them. Be friends with all of them. Don't be afraid of them. They, they need Jesus Christ. Let's befriend them. Let's do what we can to help them, you know, to see Christ in us. Um, but uh, I, I, they're not a threat to us. I, I think we, we, we probably need to redefine. They're not a threat. To, the, the gospel is the most powerful force in the universe. We have the God of the universe behind us. We have nothing to fear. You, you go into these countries, I mean, literally, like uh, Hasim, who's the guy that spoke earlier? The, the Muslim guy that spoke here a few months ago? Kasim or Hasim, 
he was here and he was talking about Muslims in the Middle East today having dreams about Jesus. I mean, he's breaking through Muslim culture today where there's no gospel and people are having dreams about Jesus and, and coming to Christ. It, there is no force that can stand against what we represent. Uh, so I, have, I, I feel no threat from them whatsoever. I just want to be friends with them and love them and hopefully they'll find Jesus someday. That's, that's my feeling on that. Um, and then one more question. By the time they are three, they are efficient most rimfire assault rifles in most rimfire assault rifles and handguns eh, maybe I would not say that generally speaking I would say that for some uh, what if a Muslim invites you to become a Muslim <laughs> politely decline I don't know <laughs> Uh, invite him to be a Christian, <laughs> you know? So, okay, well, it's been a good night together. Let's pray and close, all right? Lord, we love you and we thank you for tonight. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, we could be together tonight, learn about these religions. Uh, we pray for them. We pray for the Muslim world. We pray for the Hindu world. We pray for the Buddhist world. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to gain access to their hearts and their minds and many, many millions of them could be one to Christ as well. Lord, help us, those who are working amongst these three religions in other parts of the world, Christian missionaries and Christian churches and pastors, Lord God, would you bless every one of them tonight, and Lord, that your full power would come to bear in these places, and that you would dispel the darkness with your great marvelous light. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this night together, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys. few days it'll be on podcast on the on online